0: Easter Sunday is wonderful. It's happy. It's sweet. We've got flowers up here, pastel colors, and many of us will enjoy a ham later today or something. We get dressed up. Kids look their cutest. It's all very nice, and rightly so. But it may be easy on Sunday, Easter Sunday, to forget how heavy and dark was that Friday before Jesus' resurrection. It was not a good Friday for Jesus' disciples. One of the twelve, one of his team, turned him in for 30 pieces of silver. You have the Garden of Gethsemane, where there Jesus prays probably for multiple hours. And the centerpiece of his prayers is this. Father, if there be any other way, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there's silence. Nothing. The disciples are sleeping. At Jesus' arrest, they flee. Oh, courageous Peter takes out a sword and goes after a soldier, cuts his ear off. But, but right after that, it says... The disciples left and fled. They only watched the rest of the events of the weekend play out from a safe distance. There's Jesus' trial, the mockeries, the beatings, and he's silent. He can't carry his own cross. And then four men probably put him up against this cross and nailed him to it, driving what we would call today railroad spikes through his hands and feet. Struggling to breathe, nearing the end, he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And there's no answer. Silence again. Oh, earlier in the Jesus story, Jesus goes to a mountain with Moses and Elijah. and there, God, his father, publicly, loudly, powerfully, wonderfully, yells, This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. But now on the cross, Jesus calls on his father and there's nothing. For three hours, the sky turns dark. Until Jesus comes to the end and says, It is finished. And he breathes his last. And I'm sure for many who see this happen, who know these events firsthand, it looks like it is finished. Jesus saying, It is finished, sounds about right. That was that. Kind of like the men... Walking on the road to Emmaus, those two men, they don't know that they're with the risen Jesus, and they say to him, We were hoping he was the one to redeem Israel. What despair. What disillusionment. No one would make up a religion based on a crucifixion, no one would make up a Messiah who was crucified. No surprise that some religions since have come to believe in Jesus' teaching, but not his crucifixion. They've come to believe that he was the Son of God, but not a crucified Son of God. And frankly, the apostles at one time would have much preferred that as well. But something changed. What changed? How do you get from the dark Friday of the cross to here? to this kind of celebration? How did this Jesus thing take off? Wasn't it doomed from the beginning? How did this message connect and go and hit other people? Why are we still singing about him today? How did this become a movement 2,000 years later on the other side of the globe and in all parts of the earth almost? Well, these are the questions that I'm after today. Rather than slipping into the annals of history quietly and uneventfully like most people do, Jesus has been and still is in your face. The Jesus of the Bible is in your face. I, I don't mean in your face in the, a bad sense, like if you're playing basketball with someone and they dunk on you and then they say, in your face. I don't know if anyone still says that. That's what, that's what, they, that's what we said when I was in high school. It's old school now probably. I don't mean that. I I mean the cross is in your face in a good way. The cross as a moment in history is a crux. The resurrection is in your face in the Bible and in history. So no surprise that as Peter preaches what is the first Christian sermon in Acts chapter 2, it's very much an in-your-face message. He's a guy who didn't get it at first. He was very slow to get it. Jesus told him, They're going to crucify me, and on the third day I'm going to rise again. Peter said, Not so, Lord. I'll fight for you. I'll fight to the death. But now he gets it. What's changed? Well, let's look at his message. Turn with me to the book of Acts. Or you can take out that insert that you have inside your bulletin which contains Acts chapter 2 and the second half anyway of Peter's sermon here. It's a longer sermon as far as recorded scripture sermons go. Usually uh, scripture gives us a, an abbreviated form of a, a sermon like Stephen in Acts 7 or Peter here in Acts 2. But as far as sermons go in the Bible, this is a, a longer one so we'll only look at the second half of it today. Back in chapter 1, we see that the book of Acts is a part 2 to the book of Luke in the Bible. They're both written by Luke, a physician and a disciple of Jesus. What we call Luke, or the Gospel according to Luke, is the part 1 focusing on Jesus' birth and life and teaching and death and resurrection. Acts, the part 2 to Luke, picks up the story after the resurrection. The disciples are starting to multiply. They've seen the risen Savior. He's told them things to do, like chapter 1, verse 8. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth. So Peter is doing just that in Acts chapter 2 as he preaches to many thousands of people assembled in Jerusalem for the Jewish feast of Pentecost. Let's look at what he says, starting in verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You've made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Peter says, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne... He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says... The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. You see what Peter's doing here? He's preaching. He's preaching similar to how any Christian preacher should preach. He's referring to the Bible, and then he's explaining it, he's teaching it. But it's not just theory, it's not just information. It's personal. He's pleading, isn't he? Hear these words. He's arguing. You yourselves know. He's reasoning. It's not possible for. He's testifying. I say to you with confidence. He's bearing witness. Again, he's doing exactly what Jesus told his disciples to do in Acts 1, verse 8. You will be my witnesses. Peter has been a literal witness in the sense that he had a front row seat to the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. And now he is witnessing to others about it. He's in essence answering the questions of who is Jesus and what did he do and what does it mean and what should we do in light of it? So who is Jesus? Well, in an almost courtroom-like way, Peter holds up at least seven different clues about who Jesus is and what it means. It's like he asks us to consider exhibit A and exhibit B, like a lawyer would. So, exhibit A, he tells us to consider the undeniable miracles of Jesus. In verse 22, he says, Jesus of Nazareth was a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. They knew. They knew of Jesus' miracles and yet didn't believe in him? Yeah, they were done in your midst. You yourselves know Jesus' miracles in his time and his surroundings, they were undeniable. Oh, many today doubt whether Jesus did any miracles or whether miracles are possible. But back then, it wasn't a matter of debate. People debated by whose power he did a miracle, people debated what the miracle meant. People debated whether you could do that stuff on the Sabbath, the day of rest, whether it was work or not. And some only got mad about the miracles and debated how to stop him from doing them or how to stop him altogether. In John chapter 11, the religious leaders gathered together and And they not only recognize Jesus' many signs as they talk, but they recognize that people would continue to follow him in light of these signs, miracles, mighty works. He has to be stopped, they say. No less than the high priest is the one who says that it's better for the nation if he dies. These so-called religious leaders were so blinded by sin and self-righteousness, they didn't realize the incongruity of what they were saying. He's doing miracles. The next question should be, What? Why? How? Who is he? Instead, their next question is, How do we get rid of him? They're so blind, but not so blind, that they can't see the miraculous. That's undeniable. So Peter's making a connection here. You know about the miracles. You don't know what's behind the miracles. You never asked why they're happening, what they mean. He is a man attested to you by God with these mighty works. God did them through him. Twice Peter says, God was behind this. This is divine. These miracles then function like a an inherent message, a a confirmation. It's authenticity from God himself. The miracles are not just magic tricks made to impress some and bewilder others. No, it's God's certificate of authenticity. This man who said this and that, did this and that, is this and that, he is. God raised him from the dead. Exhibit B, an unjust crucifixion. That's what Peter moves on to next, verse 23. Remember, he says he's a man attested by God with mighty works, undeniable mighty works, real and good mighty works. And yet, you crucified and killed him. He was killed by the hands of lawless men, verse 23 says. He didn't deserve death. Even Pontius Pilate could see that. Have you ever wondered how you explain the hatred toward Jesus that you see in the Bible? Or the hatred that you see toward Jesus and his followers since then? 2,000 years of history? I mean, one thing you could say is, have you ever considered... How you explain why so many people follow him and so many people worship him and and how this thing hasn't petered out. That deserves an explanation for you if you're a skeptic. But flip the coin over. Ask this. Do you have an explanation for how and why people hated Jesus like they did? Like they still do? I mean, no one today looks back to someone in antiquity 2,000 years or more and says I hate him I hate Aristotle make a website start a club Plato Josephus have you ever noticed that other people of history even religious people their name isn't turned into a cuss word. Buddha! No one says that. No one stubs their toe and goes, Muhammad, that hurt. <laughs> What's going on? Jesus is different, isn't he? He's in your face. Like it or not, love him or hate him, but don't water him down. Don't think he doesn't matter. Exhibit B. An unjust crucifixion. Something's different about this guy. Exhibit C, a foretold resurrection. Now really this is the the centerpiece of Peter's sermon here in Acts 2. Before we get to the fact that the resurrection was foretold, that's really what he camps out on, we have to first see that Peter states the resurrection as fact. Verse 24, God raised him up. Just like the miracles... God raised him up. It's a certificate of authenticity. It proves who he is, what he said, what he did. God was behind it and in it. And he kind of gives a double argument here. He not only says God raised him, but he also says it was impossible for him not to be raised. Probably hinting at Jesus' divinity. He's God, he can't stay dead. God loosened the pangs of death. It was impossible for him to be raised. And then he gets to this main point that the resurrection was foretold. He quotes from Psalm 16. It's probably indented in your Bible like it is in mine, telling us that this is a quote from the Old Testament. Here, Peter's quoting Psalm 16, a psalm of David, written a thousand years before Jesus. And there David wrote, I saw the Lord always before me. He's at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You've made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Now that's written by David. It's written about David. It's first person, a lot of I's and me's in there. And David meant it for himself and about himself, at least on one layer, on one level. There's another layer, another level here. And that's what Peter's getting at. The Bible does this kind of thing. It has layers of historicity and meaning. We call it prophecy or we call it foreshadowing. We call it typology, a big word for just this thing that a hint back there really was pointing ahead to something ahead up here. Almost always Jesus. So that's why Peter, when he introduces this quote from David, he begins it by saying, verse 25, for David says concerning him. He doesn't mean David says concerning himself. He means David says concerning Jesus. Really? Yeah. Look down at verse 30. He tells us what's going on. He was a prophet. David was a prophet. A king and a prophet. And knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, hit pause, God promised David an eternal, righteous reign. He he promised that there would be descendants after him. So either this eternal reign from David's loins is going to be a succession of descendants that's unbroken, one after the other, except it wasn't. Or, eventually, one of David's descendants is going to be eternal. That's what it was. So, back to Peter, he says knowing God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. He was the one who was not abandoned to Hades. Oh, David was on one level, but Jesus all the more. He was the one in whom he didn't see, with whom he didn't see corruption. David didn't see corruption. Yes, the Lord was near. Yes, the Lord made him glad. And all the more so with Jesus. It was foretold. The resurrection didn't just happen, it was the plan all along. Everything in the Bible was pointing to this. This isn't a fluke. Exhibit D. An empty tomb. Peter holds up simply the empty tomb and he compares it to David. In verse 29, almost in passing, Peter notes that David died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Now, today, they don't know where King David's tomb is. But they probably did in Peter's time. If so, Peter is saying, we know where David is. It's not an empty tomb. Even great King David, the Old Testament king of kings, he died and was buried. He's over there. That's that. End of story. But it's quite different with Jesus. Jesus. You can't go to that sealed tomb and say, See, here it is. It's the tomb of Jesus. I'm sure he's inside. Nothing's changed. Now the Gospels tell us intricate details about people involved, like Joseph's, Joseph of Arimathea, who buys the grave for Jesus. His name is given. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, who went to the tomb... That morning, that Sunday morning, to prepare Jesus' body for his burial. Names are given. It's because they're witnesses. That's exhibit E, witnesses. First-hand witnesses. These people saw the risen Savior just like Peter did. He says, this Jesus, verse 32, God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. They saw him. At one time, five hundred disciples saw Jesus. If this thing's a sham, you've got to get five hundred people involved in the sham. If this is sort of like a pass it along, and and hopefully it sticks, and the story doesn't change, kind of thing, you wouldn't think that it had the kind of success that it had. That's why these names are given superfluously given. If you're writing a story or a history, you can sometimes put in too many names and make it too complicated. In the Gospels, you have superfluous names because these were first century documents at first written for first century people when some of these names were people's names who were still alive. They were saying, go check it out. Joseph of Arimathea, that's his name. He's a rich guy, he lives in Jerusalem. Go, look him up. Mary Magdalene, she'll tell you. They're witnesses. They saw it. So Peter's case for the resurrection is not a philosophical one. It's not a scientific one. It's a historical one, and it's an empirical one. I I think Peter would find no need to try to explain the resurrection to us scientifically, even if he were living in our more scientific age. I'm sure he'd agree with us modern people that the resurrection is mysterious, even hard to believe. But what is real and mysterious can, they can go together. Those categories, real, mysterious, they can go together. Even in science, things are real and still mysterious. You know, scientists really don't have an explanation for why sometimes the moon is on the horizon and it looks ten times bigger. What happened there? You say, oh, well, it's closer to us. No, it's not. It's actually the same distance. It's an illusion. Okay, maybe, but they don't know. They don't know why it looks bigger. Is the universe finite or infinite? Is it flat, a plane, or is it something else? They don't know. Light is sometimes a wave and sometimes it's a particle. Go figure, they say. Why these birds drop from the sky in mass. You've seen that in the news. A pile of birds dropped out of the sky today and landed on this guy's car. 5,000 birds! What happened? They don't know. I mean, people hypothesize, but they don't know. What's real and what's mysterious can go together. You need to know that there was no precedent for a resurrection like Jesus's before. The idea of a resurrection with a transformed body where a guy could eat and yet walk through a wall, that's in there. I know it's weird, but it's in there. They didn't have a category for that. The Greeks believed that in the end, we'd be freed from our bodies, not renewed in them. The Jews believed that one day there'll be a universal resurrection recreation. They didn't have a category for one guy getting it and the rest around him still being fallen, sinful, in decay. There was no precedent for a resurrection like this. There was no precedent for a resurrected Messiah. There were plenty of messiahs in first century times or before that would come and they would go. It would always end the same way. Either the Messiah would chicken out, or he'd be crucified, killed, somehow. And then the movement would either need another messiah or it would just trickle. It would die. There was no precedent for a resurrected Messiah. No one had heard of that category. That's why the apostles are so perplexed when Jesus says, I'm going to die on a cross, even though I'm the king, and I'm going to be raised to life on the third day. On Saturday, they're not saying, Sunday morning, it's coming. No. And walking, stooping, weight of the world in their shoulders. And then Jesus comes, and everything changes. How do you explain that all of this stuff, this teaching, these, this belief, sprung up overnight? There was no precedent before this, no category for a divine human being, especially with Jews. And yet, Jesus comes... Resurrected, And now you get all these Jews real quickly believing in a resurrected divine man. How do you explain how all this sprung up and how it spread like it did? N.T. Wright, a New Testament scholar and historian, says every one of these beliefs was unique in the world up to that time, but in every other instance that we know of, such a mass shift in thinking at a worldview level only happens to a group of people over a period of time. It ordinarily takes years of discussion and argument in which various thinkers and writers debate about the nature of the resurrection or something until one side wins. This is how worldviews change. However, in the Christian view of the resurrection absolutely unprecedented in history, it sprang up full-blown immediately after the death of Jesus. There was no process or development. His followers said that their beliefs did not come from debating and discussing. They were just telling others what they had seen themselves. I find that very, very convincing. Well, moving on. Exhibit F. You have a scene, foreseen ascension here. In verse 33, Peter cites this piece of evidence, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God. And when he says exalted and right hand, he means Jesus' ascension and his exaltation, that he was lifted up, taken away. It's recorded right in the first chapter of the book of Acts. And like these miracles and like the resurrection, it's, it's no mere magic trick. It's not like, that's a great exit to just levitate all the way up to the clouds. I mean, wow. David Copperfield, eat your heart out. No. No. It has meaning and significance. 1 Peter 3 tells us that he's gone into heaven and he's at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Everything is underneath his feet. He's ruling and reigning completely. We don't yet see all of his reign, We don't yet see everything under his control. One day we will. But the resurrection and the ascension signal that that time has come. He's the king. The universal king. The righteous one. All things are under his feet. He's reconciling all things to himself. You can just go to King David for this one. He goes to King David again. Peter... Cite Psalm 110. Where there David said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now this is complex even in David's time. It's not just an immediate connection to David and then another layer to Jesus later on. David said, The Lord said to my Lord. Who's David's Lord? The first one can be God, the Father, but The Lord said to my Lord, there's another Lord. The Lord said to my Lord, the Savior, the Messiah, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The resurrection and ascension mean authority and reign. Exhibit G, a transformed people. Peter says that what you're seeing and hearing today, verse 33, is the Holy Spirit poured out. That's what you're seeing. That's what you're hearing Now, I can't go into all of what they were seeing and hearing and what it looked like the Holy Spirit was being poured out in these Christians' lives. That all comes before. But but we can take the conclusion right away and say, Peter is saying, look around, these people are different. Look around, God's doing something supernatural. Look around, these aren't your average Joes or they're not what they used to be. Something has changed here, don't you see? To transformed people. How do you explain the Apostle Paul when he was first Saul and persecuting Christians like none other? And then he's transformed because Christ is alive. He's risen. You say, I know Christians who are jerks. Are you really going to try to tell me? Jesus is real and the resurrection is true because Christians. I know, I know Christians that are jerks too, though. I'm one of them. Sometimes. You might say, I know some Christians who are fakes. They might be. One explanation might be that they are fakes. One explanation is that they're they're actually Christians. They just you didn't see them at their best moment. One explanation is that they're yeah, they're Christians, but Christians aren't perfect. They're being made into Jesus' image. They're forgiven, but they're being restored and being made right with him, and, and, and that's, that's in, in process. I do know Christians who are jerks and who are fakes, and, and I've also seen lives changed. That's a great thing about being a pastor. It's life work, soul work. And I see all kinds of jerks, you could say, all kinds of fakes, you could say, all kinds of hypocrisy in my own heart and in others'. I see so much change and growth, something supernatural. What does it mean? What does it mean? It's possible to believe that Jesus rose from the dead and that some Christians have been transformed as they embrace that and to stop there and not understand what this is really about. I say again, this was a divine plan, this wasn't an accident at the cross. It was not an unfortunate event, and then God turned it around. Acts chapter 2 says, verse 23, This Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Yes, he was crucified by sinful men. There's mysteriousness there, mystery there, how human beings can be responsible for doing something wicked like crucifying an innocent man. And yet God's behind it all. The resurrection isn't a switcheroo so that the cross is like, ooh, boy, that was bad. I know what I'll do. Raise him up. I wrestled in high school. Uh, In wrestling, you you learn that um, when an opponent moves in a certain direction, sometimes the right thing to do is to not resist him but to go with him all you can, and then he goes further than he planned to go. Some people think that God's planning is like that. The way He orchestrates this world is like that. Things come in and He goes, whoo, let me see if I can boomerang that back to something good. But in the most wicked thing that's ever happened in this world, the crucifixion of God's own Son, God's in it. It was a plan from the beginning, it was a definite plan, it was a foretold plan all through the Old Testament was foretold by Jesus. He kept saying, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to die, and I'm going to be raised. It was a plan to save. Yes, to exalt Jesus at the end of the story, yes, but, but to save us. He came to be a ransom for us. He came to lay down his life. He came to save sinners. He says over and over, that's why he came, which makes this very personal, this resurrection. The resurrection The the crucifixion and the resurrection is very personal. Peter can say to the crowd, you crucified him. And yet he can say to them, and he offers out this promise for you and your children and anyone far away from him, as many as He calls to himself. He's calling to himself. He's bringing us back in. He's making things right. You crucified him. That's the very means by which we could be fixed. What amazing love. What a blend of victory, glory, majesty, and sacrifice and humility. What shall we do? Well, what do they do? Peter says in verse 37, I'm sorry, Luke says as he records this, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. They didn't just acknowledge that they had some part in Jesus' crucifixion or that they were generally against him. Maybe they weren't one of those yelling from the crowd, crucify him, crucify him. Maybe they were more passive, but still they didn't believe in him. They denied him. Peter says you crucified him and they don't say whatever dude they don't say who are you to judge they're cut to the heart they don't just say yep we were we were involved yes we were complicit they were cut to the heart they sense the sin and the guilt in their feelings you could say we call this as Christians conviction and they ask what shall we do How do we make this right? Is there any hope for us? Peter tells them, verse 38, repent. To repent means to give up on self, to turn away from our sins and to turn to God in faith. Repentance in Acts usually has this other word real close to it, repentance and belief. Repent and believe, repent and believe. It's all over. Here Peter says, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. That might sound like baptism is a kind of cleansing that washes our sins away. It's not. It's, out, it's, it's outside, it's external. Our sin problem is inside. What Peter's doing is giving a shorthand. Belief is assumed. The baptism is a demonstration of belief, a demonstration of identifying with Jesus. It's saying, My lot is with him. In the language of Acts 4, it's saying there is salvation in none other. There is no other name given among men whereby which we must be saved. So baptism doesn't save. Belief in Christ, trust. Confession of sin. Calling out to him. Asking him for forgiveness. Doing what one man in the book of Luke did. Just beating on your chest and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The Bible says... If we call out to him, we'll be saved. The Bible also says that the saved should be baptized in the name of Jesus. Identifying with him as a public thing to demonstrate we're not ashamed. Our lot is in his death and resurrection. That's our only hope. Who would believe such a thing? Who would do such a thing? Get baptized in public? 3,000 did this day. They received the word. Verse 41 says, and they were baptized and they were added to the group of Christians. They identified with other Christians now. Verse 42 tells us what they did. They devoted themselves to teaching, to fellowship, prayer, and the Lord's Supper. That's what churches do. That's what this church does. We teach. We pray together. We try to love each other and be loved by each other. We have this meal, the remembrance meal, the Lord's Supper. We partake of it together. And we keep reminding ourselves of our only hope, Jesus' death and his resurrection. That in his resurrection, he's entered for us a whole new realm. He's opened up a whole new world. And hence, there is indeed a whole new worldview attached with it. Now in the resurrection, in the forgiveness of sins, being restored to God Now things make sense. Now things have meaning. Now things are rich with truth and and complexity. Yes, difficulty and joy. It's a whole new world. How about you? Have you come to trust the Savior like they did? Have you come to feel cut in the heart? Have you come to turn from other forms of saving self or ignoring sin? If you come to see Jesus as both Lord and Christ? I pray that you have. Christians, let's live, celebrate, rejoice like Jesus is risen from the grave. Risen in power and in glory, changing everything. We don't see him. We didn't see him like Peter did. But the same Peter, he wrote to other Christians later on. He said, though you don't see him, you believe in him and you rejoice in him with joy, inexpressible and full of glory. Because he died, because he was raised.